0: i gotten my way up into the pulpit. It's been a long time. But it's nice. I don't know if the um, projecting team can cope with it. I thought it would be good to... It's lovely and clean in here as well, after, after the, uh, the spring clean. Keep John chapter 2 open. That, um, I should explain that having done the seven I Am's, I think in the evening service, we thought we would look at the seven signs of John's gospel in the morning service um, for the next little bit. And it should dovetail well with the home groups on Wednesday nights that are continuing in John's gospel at the moment. But let's pray with uh, John chapter 2 open before us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for preserving... The account of these signs uh, for us today and we know that they've been preserved so that uh, we might know for ourselves and believe that Jesus is your son and have life in his name. We pray for that miracle to be happening as we look at these miracles week by week, that we be led afresh to Jesus and find our all in him and real satisfaction and joy and a deepening relationship with you in him. Uh, Therefore, please, by your spirit, turn our eyes upon him this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder whether you agree with me that uh, what we're looking at this morning is effectively the most famous wedding in human history. Does uh, that fit as a title for John chapter 2 and the wedding at Cana. I know that there are plenty of people that might say other weddings at the time have had the greater coverage because of uh, technology and things like that. So Charles and Diana in the 80s, millions around the world watched that. Uh, William and Kate just 10 years ago. Um, that would be another possible contender in one sense for widespread coverage. But This must surely be the most famous wedding in human history, uh, the one we've read about in Cana of Galilee. The funny thing, I suppose, is that we don't actually know who the happy couple were who got married. We don't know their names because the most important person at that wedding was one of the guests, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the reason the wedding in Cana is remembered today. I was... uh, speaking on this passage in the 9.30 service to the children. And I was teasing them um, by teaching them that important theological word about Jesus, the theological word which grown-ups ought to use more often than we do about Jesus, the word, wow. And I want to highlight, as we look at John chapter 2, two amazing, awesome things about Jesus that should make us uh, say, wow. Wow. As it were, the first, I suppose, you could say, is 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 not particularly awesome, but it's a surprise to us, and that is his very presence at a wedding. Um, it is very matter of fact the way Jesus is mentioned in verses one and two. If you look down at them again, on the third day, uh, he's mentioned different days during chapter one of John's gospel. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana. In Galilee, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Almost like it's nothing special that he was there. Sounds like there were lots of other people present. You can imagine all the chitter-chatter going on, probably one or two people whispering commenting on who was there, who they hadn't seen for a while, as you do on these sorts of occasions. Who's that dear or that shady Uncle Moshi, the dodgy used camel dealer? Oh, oh, some sort of commenter. Lots of people, and somewhere in the crowd, there was Jesus. So I want to highlight that, his presence. And I say that that is a wow moment, because... Well, for a start, it scotches one of the most frequent misunderstandings I encounter about the Christian faith. Jesus was present at a party. I think that's striking, is it not? And we could play that word association game where I say a word and you say the first word that comes into your head. Apparently, if I was to say vegetable, I brought a carrot with me to church, that's what everybody thinks, apparently, particularly if you're of a certain generation, most of us. Um, statistically say 70% of the time say carrot if, um, if somebody says the word vegetable or think carrot if somebody says the word vegetable to us and if you were thinking about courgettes not carrots I don't want to know if I say the word Christianity to people the vast majority of people their first unbidden thought would be church but that I want to suggest is Actually, a misunderstanding. If you talk to Jesus or, or scan his teaching, actually one of the most frequent things he talks about when he talks about the kingdom of God is a party. And here, in John chapter 2, we have the founder of Christianity at ease and happy at a celebration event. Weddings are a happy occasions. Jesus was present at a wedding party, Celebrating despite the long faces that we Christians sometimes walk around with. So he doesn't particularly hide away in the unreal world of choirs and candles. He's for rubbing shoulders with ordinary people at the sort of event which is the stuff of life. And I think that's important to say. The essence of Christianity isn't actually church so much as a real-life encounter with Christ, with Jesus the Jesus who mixes with us wherever we are in life, at home, in school, I would say, to the children at the 9.30 service, at work, wherever it might be. So every bit as much as a service here today, Jesus enjoys, for example, a good party. In fact, you could even say from the rest of the story, he gives his thumbs up to good wine as well. And implicitly, he gives his thumbs up to marriage, to your marriage, if you are married here today. It means that we shouldn't compartmentalise our lives as if he's only interested in certain bits. He claims for himself and for his presence the lot the bedroom, the boardroom, not just the Bible reading or when I get up in uh, the Bible reading when I get up in the morning or on Sundays in church. I love those words of Jesus' mother spoken in verse 5. Do whatever he tells you. They are sometimes called the gospel according to Mary. Do whatever he tells you. And I think the implication is that as Lord of all life, there is no area that he is not qualified to speak to us on. So he can tell a fisherman where to cast their nets We looked at that in the evening service last week, one of those resurrection appearances. He can give orders to a catering team about how to sort out the catering arrangements at a wedding party with no likelihood or possibility that he will be embarrassed because he's dealing with an area that he's not supposed to know about and somebody else is more of an expert. Whatever he tells you, whoever you are, Jesus is operating in an area of expertise which is entirely reasonable and appropriate for him. Now that, it seems to me, is one thing to take to heart. Jesus' presence at the marriage in Cana as a wow thing. And Additionally, by his, his spirit, he's present with us today. He can be present in our lives, in our relationships, in everything. I want to encourage people, therefore, not to rule him out of any area, certainly not to shut him out of different bits of our lives the other thing it seems to me is perhaps even more striking is the miracle itself and I I can summarize that by by a heading saying Jesus power Uh, obviously I I mentioned that the wedding was a happy moment earlier well it was a happy moment until the wine ran out which potentially was a, a matter of embarrassment I think Somewhere I read it was a, a possible matter of litigation um, between the, uh, the bride and the groom's families if a wedding got derailed in this sort of way. I don't know how this sort of thing could be said. But anyway, it was a happy moment until that point. Um, Maybe this was, if there wasn't a shady Uncle Moshi present at a wedding like that, maybe he would have been turned to at this moment, because he's the sort of person, I suppose, who today might have had hundreds of contacts on a mobile phone that you could phone up in emergency. Somebody might have on, got to, onto him saying, phone up cana Catering and get a case or five of the Verve de tacoa and uh, rescue the situation that way. But if someone tried some ruse to get more wine, it sounds like there was no answer. So Mary tells them, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And Jesus points at the pots. He says to the servants, go and fill them. They're empty at this point. There's a lot of bustle and hustle. And the servants go trooping off to the well to fill them. Then the servants are instructed to do something else draw something out from the pots and take it to the master of the banquet. And at that point, it's clear that whilst water was put in the, uh, uh, the uh, ceremonial jars, wine has come out. And a lot of wine, 600 litres or so, trying to work out what 600 litres of milk would look like. It would certainly fill the car on a supermarket shopping trip, I'm sure, and need an awful lot of Weetabix and stuff like that to soak it up. And that volume of wine is created. Um, and not just any old wine. It's the best wine they've ever had. So the steward in charge of the meal was, I guess he must have been laughing his head off at this point, very funny, good joke. He said he didn't know what had happened. Good joke, getting us all worried about um, there being no wine when you had this stuff out the back all the time. Normally, we keep the plonk for when everybody's already had plenty to drink and their taste buds are all dulled, but you've kept the best to last. Um, He knew nothing of what had happened. He just thought there'd been a simple error and the wrong wine had come at the wrong time. That was the explanation he thought. The servants who'd put the water into the jars knew differently. They knew it was water that had gone into the pots and wine that was uh, being tasted now. It's quite interesting. I just encourage you, just as an aside, when you read familiar stories, to look at the, the cast of characters and the way their different roles in the events as they unfold are being spelt out. To me it's significant that you've got Mary involved in verse 4. Servants in verse 5. Then shimmy down to verse 9. The master of the banquet, verse 8, verse 9, is mentioned. He tastes the water that had been turned into wine. Um, He didn't realize where it had come from. The servants did know. And then... The bridegroom makes an entry in verse 9, doesn't he? Then he called, the master of the banquet, called the bridegroom aside and said that little stuff that we've mentioned already about the best being saved till last. I think it's, it's interesting to me to say, who knows what? Who is aware of what? As you follow the details of the story through. Now, many people always, with the miracles that Jesus did, try and come up with alternative Explanations. Maybe Jesus slipped something like Ribena into the pots on the sly, people might say. Was that what Jesus did? Or there was some wine in the pots already, and Jesus just swished the water around, and out came this uh, so-called wine. But it wouldn't have been the right color. It wouldn't have tasted like the best wine they'd ever had, if that had been the case. I think we have to say that it's clearly presented as an instance of Jesus' great power, and we are to be amazed by what he did. In one sense, you could say it is not too extraordinary in the sense that turning water into wine is not hard for God. He does all sorts of amazing changes all the time in the natural world as Lord of nature, Lord of creation. He can take green grass and make a brown cow, turn it into white milk, God makes water into wine each year, in one sense, in the vineyards, in that over time, rain in the clouds is changed into wine in the grapes. happens every year. But you have to say that what's happening here is done in a much more quick time approach by Jesus. Augustine put it like this. He said, the very water saw its God and blushed. And this miracle is a reminder that Jesus is Lord of creation. More than that, it's a wonderful picture of the change Jesus made when he entered into our world. The prophets have predicted that when God's king came, the mountains would flow with new wine. That's in Amos chapter 9. He has this amazing prediction of the future Messianic day when the... um, The reapers will overtake the sowers because harvesting gets speeded up in a a dramatic, wonderful way. And new wine will flow down the mountains, he says. And for those who had eyes to see it, here was that messianic age happening. Everything about Jesus' life was like that from start to finish, Maybe I should particularly mention the finish of his life because that supremely, when he died on the cross, was the moment that human destinies were completely changed and transformed. You get a a little hint even within the story. In that brief interchange we've already mentioned when he was talking to his mother Mary that something like this point is being made by John. He told her there his time had not yet come in verse 4, which is a phrase that gets repeated more than once to highlight that all the miracles Jesus did in his life wouldn't transform human life as much as the decisive hour of his death. That was supremely his hour, this phrase that gets used in John's Gospel or highlighted in John's Gospel that time where he took the punishment for our sins so that we could be forgiven, and then as a result, the outflowing of that death for our sins, he was raised from the dead after three days, now he gives us his Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. And that is what this event in John chapter 2 points on towards, the hour of Jesus' life, the decisive moment, that transformation that comes from his death is mirrored and pictured in this miracle that happened here. It's a sign, a change as amazing as water to wine happens for creation as a whole. There's a new creation in Christ that happens and for individuals as they turn to him. Preachers sometimes tell the story of a man who was an alcoholic and his family had paid the price for that because... Every week the wage packet used to get blown on booze and his wife had a terrible job to keep the children fed and clothed. She actually had to sell, in this story, some of the furniture off to make ends meet. And then her husband became a Christian and things began to change. The little ones had shoes again. Some chairs were bought for the home. And people noticed, especially when the man started telling everyone what Jesus Christ had done for him. Well, his workmates weren't particularly impressed. Go on, they said. You don't honestly expect us to believe all that nonsense about Jesus Christ, you turning water into wine. Oh, never mind that, he said. You come back to my house and I will show you how he turned beer into furniture. So that sort of transformation happens in people's lives. And it's, that's, that's a, a nice story, a little pointed to the fact that the power that he changed The power he used to change water into wine is the same power by which he transforms and forgives and beautifies human lives. Now, what do you think is the appropriate response to those two wow aspects of Jesus Christ, his presence and his power? Where John heads with it is verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. The things that make us say, wow, you are awesome, Lord Jesus. And what's the outcome of it? And his disciples believed in him or put their faith in him. We have... um, In the 9.30 service, we had Tom Habib here. I don't know if you are familiar with what he's been studying in his PhD for the last three years. It is the theme of faith in John's Gospel. Because here, early on, in John chapter 2, we get a description of the disciples putting their faith in Jesus. it's clear from this point on that they are not the finished article. Yes, they've put their trust in Jesus, but there's more to their relationship with Christ. They have to grow and develop in that over the years, and that's partly what Tom is discovering as he's done his study on uh, this idea of faith in John's Gospel. There are all sorts of different shades and hints to what it means to be a believer in Christ, and some people having said they believe in him, move back from that. Uh, Well, the the call for for John to all of us is to grow in our relationship with Christ. They put their faith in him. I suppose it's another way of saying they gave him their lives. They trusted him with everything. I wonder if after John chapter 2 and this miracle, they said to him, Lord Jesus, what you do is so amazing that I want to be with you forever. I want to give you the rest of my life I want to do so permanently and for always. That's something of what it means to be in relationship with him. And that's what we have to do to say that to him and mean it. And that relationship with Christ ought for all of us to be a priority. Uh, The wine at the wedding would run out before long. But it's only a sign, isn't it? The new wine of Christ's kingdom, and our love relationship with him, which all marriage is a picture of, that can't be bettered, and that lasts forever. And the wonderful invitation of this passage to us is to make sure that that relationship is ours. Let's pray together. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us. Uh, whether we've been uh, in the orbit of Christian things for a long, long time, afresh to put our faith in Jesus today, to grow in our relationship with him, to be more taken with his wonderful love for us, to grow in our love for him, we pray for the wonder of the transformation that he offers to us and indeed to all creation to be something that fills us with great joy and gratitude we thank you today for jesus the great bridegroom we rejoice in him together in jesus name amen